This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Can you dig it? Can you dig it? Can you dig it? That more dramatic or like sort of understated or what? This is a land that prays for a hero. The humor of the entire situation suddenly gave way to a run for survival. You are listening to Greening the Apocalypse on Triple R102.7 FM. Welcome to another edition of Green the Apocalypse, where each week we half suppress a little shriek about the existential threats to the world and then try and discuss some happier ways of dealing with them. (laughs) (laughs) Just me and Jed in the studio tonight on our second last edition for the show. We have a bit of a pre-record to play tonight, which is what we do when we occasionally speak to somebody in the US because we can't convince them to get up at four in the morning to do live to air with us. We're going to talk to a fellow called Connor Stedman about carbon farming. And uh, did you hear this one, Jed, when I... No, no? I didn't. Oh, I, well. um, I didn't have time to, to listen, so it'll be good to hear it. Yeah, if there's a live. bit of time at the end, you can, you know, throw some thoughts into the ring. It was just me and everybody else uh, couldn't make it to this interview, so you're just going to hear a lot of me and Connor tonight. But he's a, he is a very good egg. Now, to just to introduce the topic a bit, you know, you know, Jed, when you go into like a, a mature garden and there's, there's kind of bits of screening, so you can't see it all at once. And so there'll be patches of, you know, all different varieties of flowers and they probably change through the seasons and then there'll be a pond somewhere. And if you stare into in it, there's going to be like, you know, a little microcosm of fish and bugs yep. and things. And, you know, there's a hidden little nooks. And then you look over the neighbor's fence, which is the same size block, and it's just concrete or grass. And you suddenly realize how small this garden was that you felt was like, you know, it's a bit TARDIS-like. Yep. So, <laughs> so the topic we're talking about tonight is about carbon farming, which is getting carbon from the atmosphere into the ground and into trees, basically, but in ways that it's actually a profitable enterprise. But the kind of picture that our guest paints is one of a world where because you know, most of the world is agricultural, rural landscapes, um, that is kind of like a rural parallel of that where there's a much more patchwork rural landscape of trees and crops and pastured animals and orchards and shelter belts that are really rich and diverse of different species and good for wildlife. So, so, so what I'd imagine the um, my short trips to the UK are like where it's you know, you have these little paddocks and, yes. um, you know, hedgerows in between and forests and rather than our landscape where, you know, you can drive for two hours and spot that one tree if you're lucky. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we're, we're farming it to death. Yeah. yeah. So I actually think it's kind of, um, I have, to, I, I did put the interview around to our colleagues, Kate and Bushy had to listen to it. I was thinking maybe we got a little bit wonky, you know, like, because both Connor and I, we run permaculture businesses and we talk a lot about in the interview on-farm strategies and I thought, oh, is that going to be of interest to that many people? But they said it's good. So we're going to play the whole thing. Um, I definitely think it's, he's a great interview. It's just uh, whether, you know, we went too far down the rabbit hole or not, but I think it's fascinating stuff. And it's also 
just so, so incredibly significant. We had Tim Flannery on the show not that long ago talking about seaweed farming. Mm. He's pulling his hair out thinking about the same issue. How do we draw down carbon from the atmosphere? Because just lowering our CO2 emissions isn't enough if we want civilization to survive, frankly. And, and, and was it Shona, someone we had recently saying exactly. we'd need to plant, or it might have been Tim saying, you know, if you just do it by planting trees, we'd have to basically plant the whole, whole Masses world. Amounts. You know? Masses <laughs> amounts of trees, yeah. yeah. So I, I like this perspective. He's very much looking at how can we find co-benefits for farmers yeah. that make both more beautiful landscapes and ones that actually function better and can, in many cases, turn more of a profit. But it does mean there needs to be a whole new generation of farmers that are doing locally adapted, smaller farming probably, yeah, that are sensitive to the nuances of place and it's a massive ask. But hopefully listen to this and get inspired and, you know, if you're at a loose end today or tomorrow, you know, maybe become a farmer. <laughs> You might inspire some people. Yeah. Um, so to talk about that, we have Connor Stedman, who is a field ecologist and environmental planner. Uh, he's a farm planner at Appleseed Permaculture in New York State in the US, and he runs an international carbon farming course. And uh, yeah, we spoke together on the on the phone a couple weeks back. So this is Connor Stedman. Welcome to Greening the Apocalypse, Connor Stedman. Hello there. Thanks for having me on. It is very good to have you. Now, you have been looking at this issue of carbon farming and teaching on it for many years. Can you give us a brief definition of what those two words together mean? Sure. So carbon farming is referring to the fact that, you know, as I'm sure your listeners are real familiar with, we're in a global crisis around climate change, um, largely because of greenhouse gas emissions from burning fossil fuels, and also because of land use changes from deforestation and, you know, other industrial agriculture and other things happening, particularly in the last few centuries that have significantly imbalanced the proportion of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. And, there are, there, you know, there's a lot of efforts around the world to address that through reducing emissions and, and, and also through getting people's lives ready and prepared for a disrupted climate that we're already experiencing, but also a lot of efforts to draw carbon down from the atmosphere and store it in the earth in different forms. Um, and so some of those are kind of geoengineering projects that people are working on that a lot of which have some risks and questions to them. And some of them are also trying to do biological sequestration, storing carbon in ecosystems and forests and wetlands and soil. So carbon farming is this hope and possibility that through farming practices that store carbon, we could be addressing food insecurity as well as climate change at the same time. Mm. So... Is it possible to talk about the numbers of what we need to do in the context for this? M most international agreements about addressing climate change are very much on reduction, re about reducing CO2 emissions. What you're talking about is um, going in the opposite direction, which if we're to hit those what are considered safe levels, pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we have to do better than just reduce our emissions, don't we? That's right. Yeah, because currently global global concentration of CO2 is over 400 parts per million. And historically, up until the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, it was 
between about 180 and 280 parts per million at different points in the last half million years. So that jump from, you know, say 280 to 400 is really significant. And um, we would have to get down to 350 parts per million or below to hold to an average of two degrees Celsius warming worldwide. And basically what that would mean is that we would have to go to net zero emissions worldwide, which presently we're at net 5 billion tons of carbon added to the atmosphere per year. So we'd have to go from net 5 billion tons to zero worldwide. And we'd also have to take about a quarter trillion tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. So that's an additional 250 to 300 billion tons removed. Per year. Um, and no, no, total. Total, total, yeah. 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 Um, so you're exactly right that car- that emissions reduction by itself won't get it done and sequestration by itself won't get it done. We have to decarbonize the whole world economy and we have to do significant carbon storage in, in ecosystems. So, so in terms of how proven and how viable using agricultural and forestry techniques are to draw down carbon, how do they compare to some of the more high-tech stuff that you hear about? Sure. So... The the biological approaches to carbon storage are much better proven than the high-tech geoengineering approaches that are being talked about right now. You know, I'll just speak to one of the more promising high-tech approaches that I've heard about has to do with essentially building factories that take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and store it and pump it deep underground into basalt geologic structures where it will remineralize on this on this time span of just a few years, um, and that the challenge with that is that it's extremely expensive, and it doesn't produce a useful product out of that process. It's just a it's just a carbon sequestration process. So that of all the geoengineering schemes I've heard of that involve new unproven technologies, that one has sounded the best to me because it seems to have the fewest potential harmful side effects. Some of the other ones involve seeding iron into the oceans to increase the storage rate of ocean water, um, the carbon storage rate of ocean water, and increasing cloud cover worldwide through cloud seeding to reflect more heat back into space. And it's really wild stuff that would, would probably have some very serious unintended consequences. Whereas the process through which carbon is stored in soil and in perennial plants is broadly very well understood. And most of the farming and reforestation practices and, you know, wetlands restoration practices that can increase that storage in ecosystems are also very well understood. So I think we're on quite good ground, so to speak, in terms of trying to deploy those ecological strategies in different places around the world. And the interesting challenge of it is that they can't be applied in the same way in all places in the world, because all places in the world aren't the same. All climates aren't the same. All soils aren't the same. And also the economic and social context is going to be different in in different countries and regions. So the details of it are very interesting and complex, but the process of it is very well understood. Hmm. I kind of think of farming as something that destroys soils. We hear about the history of civilizations being one where agriculture works in these places with these beautiful, rich, highly organic soils, and then through tilling and often grain growing, uh, that soil gets destroyed and washed away and the carbon dissipates. Is, is that a fair perspective on agriculture as we largely practice it now? I think I would I think I would complexify that a little bit because that it is true that 
mass scale grain based agriculture that's trying to feed large empires and civilizations has done that by and large across the last, let's say, five to 7,000 years. However, when I look at human history, what it looks like to me is that the much more normal condition for human beings has been to live in small cultures and societies that were very adapted to their local places that did in many cases practice agriculture that was highly sustainable. So these big expansionist empires have typically wrecked their land bases very quickly, you know, going back to the Romans and the Babylonians and a lot of other empires that a lot of people learn about in school. But almost the less told story is the story of all those small societies around those empires and that were often taken over by them who had been farming for just as long, if not longer, and did not wreck their land base. Hmm. So I think it's that, it's that, uh, lineage of traditional agriculture practices that is the source material for a lot of the sustainable and regenerative farming that we're trying to deploy around the world right now. And that's exactly what the United Nations said in their big report a few years back on sustainable farming worldwide. They said, hey, you know, the, the really sustainable way to feed the planet is going to be small, diversified, locally adapted farming. It's not going to be big commodity crop agriculture because the small diversified farms are better adapted to the changing climate and they also are more productive per hectare than the large monocrop farms are. Yeah, that was certain, certainly for the majority world they made that, that claim, wasn't it? Yeah. If, n- if not the highly industrialized countries. But um, from a carbon drawdown perspective, presumably those small-scale farmers are better at it than the large industrial ones. If, if you're kind of the Romans versus the um, more traditional farming techniques metaphor hold, still holds to this day in a way. <laughs> right. And I think, I think it does. And, you know, I think especially in the global tropics, what you can see is that the traditional farming practices of, you know, multi-strata multi-strata agroforestry, you know, tree-based home gardens that have a history that goes back long before the beginning of grain agriculture in the Levant, um, you know, back 30 to 40,000 years in terms of modifying tropical forests for food production. That taproot of tropical agriculture, those also happen to be some of the most carbon storing farms on the planet. And converting you know, degraded farmland to those multi-story tree farming systems has some of the highest carbon storage potential of anything we could be doing. And then in the, you know, in the cold climate world, there's similar stories to be told about, um, about home gardens as well. There's a really, there's a really long and interesting home garden tradition in, you know, Russia and the former Soviet Union with people's dacha farms and gardens Mm -hmm. that, people would grow in out in the countryside and that helped people survive when there was, when there was famines at different times. And there's also a really long history of very diverse and tree based sustainable farming in Europe that goes back a very long time. And then of course, traditional indigenous farming and land management all throughout the Americas. So um, I think there's a lot to draw on, but from the carbon drawdown point of view, if you're putting carbon into ecosystems, and in this case, into, into an agricultural landscape, you're basically putting it into two places. We'll leave wetlands out for the moment. You're putting it into soil, and you're putting it into perennial plants. So at a really simple level, carbon farming is about maximizing organic matter, right, or maximizing topsoil fertility. And it's also about maximizing the presence of perennial plants and especially long-lived trees and other perennials like bunch grasses on farms. So part of that is about, 
you know, what's the role of wild vegetation on farms, but it's also about what's the role of trees and tree crops as part of the farming ecosystem. And what's the role of pastured livestock production rather than grain-based livestock production, because grain-based livestock production is an annual production system that's then fed to animals versus animals eating the perennials that they're adapted to eat. Yeah, maybe we should just define the difference. And I think it came up on a very recent Green in the Apocalypse show, but an annual being a plant which you need to re-sow every year. And by virtue of that, it normally involves plowing and exposing the soil to the sun and the wind and the air, which is damaging for the soil. Uh, I'm right, yeah? So we're talking all the grains, most of what we eat um, for breakfast and lunch and dinner. Yeah, Yeah, Um, that's right. And and there it is... It is possible to grow many annuals without tillage. However, most of the existing techniques for doing that involve heavy use of herbicides. And that herbicide use has significant other harmful ecological effects and and water quality impacts. And so there are people working on organic no-till systems, and those are very interesting. But it is difficult to store substantial amounts of soil carbon if you are tilling every year. Hmm. And so the perennial plants, you don't need to till, but yeah, there's not as many of them in the in the field of our our main sort of uh, calorie crops. Yeah, and so you know, I I don't at all mean to be disparaging towards annual crops. You know, I eat, I love eating bread and rice and and corn and all these all these beautiful annual vegetables and and grain crops. I think it's a question of how they're grown, and also it's a question of what the what the kind of complementary systems that go along with them are. For instance, you know, many people around the world are fed by wheat. We know we're fed by bread and all the things that wheat produces. A lot of the land that grows wheat could be changed from a carbon losing, you know, a carbon emitting landscape into a much more carbon sequestering landscape by intercropping that wheat with tree crops, Mm -hmm. by intercropping that wheat with, you know, tree crops that are grown for timber or for fence posts, or in some cases for nuts or fruits or other staple products. Um, And, you know, and there's been a lot of good research on the the beneficial effects in terms of windbreaks and also in terms of diversified production of just adding a simple tree component to existing annual farms. And then the other thing you can do with annual farming, you know, because again, billions of people depend on those products, but the other thing you can do is have a really high usage of cover cropping because cover cropping is a crop that you plant that you generally don't harvest for food, but you plant it after your main crop or you sow it underneath right before you harvest your main crop. And then it grows after the main crop has been harvested. So this might be in, you know, in North America, this might be winter wheat or winter rye or buckwheat. And some of those crops are also used in Australia. And those cover crops hold vegetative cover across the soil year round. So they're having photosynthesis happen, which means that a little bit of carbon is being stored in the soil through exchange with microbes while they're growing. And it also means that you're not losing carbon to erosion from wind or, or water or flooding during that time. So that, that, car, that cover cropping component is a really key piece of, um, of balancing out the, the carbon cycle on these annual farms. And then where it's possible to have farms that are much more perennial based, that are based on pasture and based on trees, that's where you get the really high carbon storage potential. Mm-hmm. So you said that the carbon is being stored both above ground and below it. And some of the pictures that you're painting here of the above ground, I'm seeing, well, I guess if there's going to be carbon stored above ground, you're going to have uh, more trees and just visible plants, right? 
Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It, it does change the character of the agricultural landscape. But, you know, it's really interesting, like in, um, I've seen these, I've seen these fresco paintings from Italy back in the, from the 1300s or so. And there, there's, you know, there's some of these old illustrated Bibles and manuscripts and things. And there's, there's beautiful paintings around the, the words that were being written. And they show the, the, the countryside, they show the agricultural landscape at that time. And it's all trees. It's all orchards and hedgerows and forest plots and then animals grazing under those trees. So there was, there was really interesting agroforestry going on in Europe before the mechanization of farming around the time of the World Wars uh, in, the, in the 20th century. And a lot of those trees were cut down in order to do monocrop grain farming like we were talking about. So we don't have to give up annuals like I was saying, but I think we can divide diversify our farm landscapes a lot in a way that's beneficial to the farmer because it's diversified and it's also a bit more resilient to floods and droughts and wind and things like that from the presence of those trees. And then it also, you know, is a, is serving this public good of storing carbon that, that supports everybody's survival into the future. Hmm. Um, let's, let's come back to what it means for farmers to do this. The other part of the equation of you were talking about where the carbon is stored is in the soil. Visually, I th- it's one of the things I know as a gardener that you look for in a soil is that darkness and that richness and that crumbliness. And that's a sign that there's a fair bit of carbon stored in the soil, is it not? That's right. Yeah. So in that, you know, there's different layers and horizons of soils and you know, the diversity of soils on this planet is so enormous that I couldn't possibly, you know, presume to speak about all soils in any consistent way. But I will say that top layer, that what's sometimes called the O horizon and the A horizon below it, where there's the most organic matter, the darker that top layer is in general, the more organic matter is present. And the presence of organic matter in that top layer of soil it creates a texture in the soil that's a very excellent medium for water and nutrients and microbes to all be stored and exist there. And there's been a lot of research about how when there's more topsoil organic matter, there's significantly greater water retention capacity in the soil. So soils don't become droughty as quickly. They, they hold on to water and release it to plants over a longer period of time. And, you know, a lot of the techniques for adding carbon to those soils are the things that organic farming and sustainable agriculture has been trying to do for a long time already. Use of cover crops, like we talked about, also the use of compost, um, which, you know, just uses the decomposition process to add carbon directly to the soil through things being broken down by the decomposer community. And, you know, and also through there's more speculative things, actually some of them coming out of Australia that some of your listeners over there might be familiar with, like pasture cropping. Where in a warm, a warm temperate climate, people will drill seed a grain crop directly into a pasture. So the pasture is in perennial cover, but then if you time it right, you can get a wheat harvest out of that pasture. And so you're grazing before the wheat is planted, you grow the wheat, you harvest it, and then you graze on the pasture again after, and the pasture is there the whole time. So that's a really interesting way to do annual production in a perennial system. Mm. Yeah, so that's... Uh... Cole Sice, who we mentioned in a recent show with farmer Charles Massey uh, with the pasture cropping technique. Now, we should talk about the scalability and the potential of this stuff, but before we even approach that, let's talk about the viability of uptake of these strategies, which are rich and varied and location-specific, as you said, which means it's going to be pretty difficult to have a central unified (laughs) kind of Um, control and command system implementing this and it very much will come down to 
farmers getting some benefit from it, whether they are, there are some extra right. incentives for it. But many of the things that you've mentioned, like a more beautiful farm, it could be, you know, as you're describing, you know, the older Italian landscapes, um, but also a more resilient farm structure you mentioned, and also just having a richer soil. These seem to be things which might be inherent incentives for farmers to uptake them. Is this something that we're seeing already? And if, if not, why? And what are the pros and cons for farmers? Sure, yeah. So the, I, the co-benefits of these carbon farming practices, you know, the co-benefits of more trees and more topsoil are very significant, like you said, and a lot of people want to do it for those reasons alone. And I will say that what I've seen is that particularly among younger generation farmers, when we have stable access to land for the long term, I'm seeing people of people of my generation investing in these longer term strategies because what they are really is their land improvements, their capital, their, their capital expenditures in a sense, if you think about it in business terms. And so those land improvements make sense if you have decided you're going to be farming here for decades to come. When people don't have land security, it's not generally economically viable for them to make those investments and sometimes even to invest in their soil. So I think the really the really big social and political work that goes along with this carbon sequestration project is about land access and land reform and making sure that farmers have long-term access to the land that they're growing on and have pathways to equity and ownership. Um, because it's just, if we're in a neo-feudal situation where capital owns all the farmland and then people just work for them in kind of a surf-like state, I don't think that's going to work. And I don't think it's going to incentivize the land managers to really um, do what, what will benefit everyone in the long run. But in terms of the quantities that we're talking about, is that where you wanted to go next? I do want to go there. Yes. And I'd like yeah. to know what kind of research has been done and how speculative the numbers are and also ballpark what should be achieved next to did you say we need to draw down a quarter of a trillion tons of carbon yes i did say that right (laughs) uh this is a big you know big project for the rest of our lives and perhaps hopefully not but perhaps beyond okay so let let me i'm gonna i'm gonna start to give some numbers and hopefully this won't get too math heavy but so there are about 12 billion acres. I'll, actually, let me try to speak in hectares for your, for your crew over there. There's about 5 billion hectares of agricultural land worldwide. And those, oh gosh, I'm going to have, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to do U.S. acres because all acres. my numbers well, are we, 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 on, we use on my both. notes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, forgive me if this is confusing to anyone. But, so there's about 12 billion acres of agricultural land worldwide. And about two-thirds of that is pasture and rangeland that's primarily or exclusively used for grazing animals. Most of the rest is in tillage. It's, it's growing annual crops using plowing, like we were talking about. A small percentage is in tree crops. Now, if you think about that 12 billion acres of land, 100% adoption of anything is just, it's a total fantasy. It's not possible or any, anywhere close to that. And if, if for no other reason that large portions of the earth are experiencing war and civil conflict and, you know, famines and, you know, really significant social and ecological breakdown challenges where making improvements to their land base is not the top survival priority. And so people in those circumstances can't be expected to prioritize the long term. They need to make sure their families live another day. 
So any plan that is imagining 100% adoption needs to be regarded as unrealistic. So that said, what we're talking about in terms of a per acre basis is that on the below ground side, if you create a 1% increase in soil organic matter on one acre of land, that stores about 10 tons of carbon mm-hmm. on that one acre. That's pretty good. Okay, so divide a um, quarter trillion by that. <laughs> well, right. So, but just to give an image of what that means, if we were, if we were to do a 1% improvement in soil organic matter, which means 10 tons of carbon per acre on 10% of all the agricultural land in the world on, you know, a billion and a quarter acres or so that would, that would only be about 5% of the sequestration that we need to get below 350 parts per million. So what that means is two things. One of the things is we need to aim for much higher than 10% of global farmland using these improved practices. Mm -hmm. And we also need to aim for systems that can sequester much more than 10 tons per acre. Now, fortunately, I think there's reason to think that we can do both of those. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, some of the higher carbon sequestering systems, you know, so you can imagine like, you know, the, some, of the, some of the highest, best, fastest results that I've seen from growers in North America who are using really good rotational grazing with animals, who are using really good cover cropping practices and, and use of compost and other, other soil building techniques. Some of the the best results I've seen are people getting a 1% increase in organic matter in a single year. Wow. Um, that needs to be regarded as a bit of an outlier. That's a very high-end result and is not what the global averages are from the research that's been done. So there has been quite a lot of research done on sequestration rates. There's more research done on sequestration from improved annual techniques and from tree crop-based techniques and a bit less research so far on sequestration from grazing. So that's actually where some of the some of the research questions and controversies exist most in the realm of grazing. Mm -hmm. So on a global average, you're getting more like a 0.1% increase in soil organic matter per year using improved annual, annual practices than a 1% increase per year. And of course, and again, it's very variable, but that's kind of the order of magnitude that we're often talking about. Mm -hmm. Now in terms of trees, the above ground side, That system I was painting a picture of where you have a wheat field and you're interplanting your wheat with strips of trees. And they could just be one species of tree like polonia or locust or mesquite or one of these nitrogen fixing trees that also has an economic use. Mm -hmm. Even those quite simple agroforestry systems, not in the driest climates, right? So not in highly arid climates, but in most climates that are not deserts and not the Arctic, that kind of simple tree intercropping can store about 50 tons of carbon per acre above ground in the wood of the trees. Which, right? Did you so, say that's the equivalent of 5%? I might be mixing up my units. That's right. No, that's right. That's the equivalent of a 5% increase in soil organic matter. And that's, yeah. however, that is over the harvested lifetime of the tree. So if you, like, if you're growing mesquite, and well, mesquite actually uses a food crop, so you just let it grow most of the time. But if you're growing, if you're growing locust or mimosa and you're cutting it for biomass or animal fodder, on net, those trees will regrow after they're cut. So you've basically created another, a new carbon s- stock mm-hmm. in the growing and being recut and growing and re- being recut trees on that property. So the, the potential of that stock is usually 
can get to somewhere around 50 tons per he- per acre. Now, when when you are involving trees more intensively in the landscape, having multiple layers of trees, like in those like in those multi-strata systems we were talking about, or you know, or doing reforestation strips as part of a part of a farm landscape, those systems can store much more than 50 tons per acre. And the highest storing systems that I've seen research into, you know, are those tropical multi-strata tree farms where you've got, you know, an overstory that's macadamia nuts and an understory that's coffee or cacao. And then you have nitrogen fixers interplanted and it's a whole amazing rainforest like system. Those systems are showing up to around 250 to 300 tons of storage per acre above ground. Yeah. And some of the other systems that are very high carbon storing are the silvopasture systems where you have, you have carbon stored in the soil from good grazing practices, from rotational grazing, and you also have trees being added to the pasture to provide shade for the animals and carbon storage. So those silvopasture systems are also some of the very high carbon storage systems that are possible. So, and I think you can perhaps imagine that it's really when you have significant below ground storage through big gains in soil in soil carbon and above ground storage through trees in the landscape that that's when you really start to reach that that potential that 150 to 300 tons per acre potential. So, I think that there's kind of two places to look here. There's what are the what are the improvements to farming practices that can be adopted on a very large scale. Like cover cropping, you know, if, if there was millions of new acres of cover cropping, that would make a huge difference. That'd be very significant, you know, and improve grazing practices where that's possible. Or, you know, in many parts of the world, just these simple strip intercropping systems where you have tree strips interplanted with your annuals. So those are kind of the high adoptability systems. And then there's the systems that have very high carbon storage potential. And I think we need to invest in both of those, the ones that can store on the very high end and the ones that can be adopted on the very broad end. Yep. Well, it's, I mean, it sounds like you're painting, at least with these really high uh, carbon storage strategies, um, a pretty beautiful picture of what we could transform the planet into. And on the scale that we're talking, we'd have to see a lot of the world transformed into these uh, sort of patchwork tree and pasture or tree and cropping type uh, situations. Well, and let me go to some of the caveats that you asked about, because I think those are important to be really clear about. So one of the things is there are in arid and semi-arid climates there, the the limiting factor on tree growth is not above ground competition. Hmm. In other words, if you're in a humid climate, what limits tree growth is that the trees shade each other out and they take up each other's three dimensional space above ground. But below a certain annual rainfall level, and depending on the tree species in question, the limiting factor becomes below ground competition for water. And if you are in an arid or semi-arid climate, especially if you're in a droughtier soil or a drier and more erosive part of the landscape there, you have to be really thoughtful about what trees you plant. Because if you plant trees such as eucalypts that have a higher water requirement, then you can actually increase the drought potential of your landscape through that planting and you can reduce the water available for your other food crops or for forages or animals so not all climates are appropriate for large-scale tree plantings and some of the anti-desertification efforts have made the mistake of planting trees beyond their water tolerance in such a way that their survival rate is very low and it doesn't have the intended effect 
The other caveat is that these improvements to farmland, these soil improvements and these investments in trees and, and you know, reforesting parts of the landscape and things like that, they sometimes involve changes in farming practices for the farmer. And, you know, when they involve just adding tree strips or adding, you know, a cover crop rotation into their growing, that's usually a, a fairly simple change in management. But some of these systems are more complex and are a bigger change in business practices. And so that means that there's risks and costs to the farmer in making that transition. And I think what's really clear from looking at the, the really dire economic and livelihood circumstance that a lot of farmers are in worldwide is that farmers can't be asked and expected to bear that risk themselves. Because if we're asking farmers to provide a public good, which it is indeed a worldwide public good to do this carbon drawdown, if we're, if we're putting a public value on that carbon storage that farmers are doing, then there needs to be a source of support and funding from someone other than the individual farmer or the individual farm business. And that can come from the private sector, you know, from industries investing in their own supply chains, which would be a very smart thing to do. And some companies are starting to do that, where they're investing in the climate resilience and also the carbon storage of the producers who they purchase from so that they can both tell a story that has more integrity to it about how their products are made and also so that their producers are more viable in the long run. But it can also come from the, from the public sector, from public investment in farmland. Um, and then it also can come from the philanthropic sector, from donors and foundations and, and NGOs making these investments themselves. And I think it's going to be a combination of all three that, that's going to fund and pay for and support farmers through this transition. Because if it is up to the farmers themselves, that's too great of a burden to ask these very valiant people to bear who are already feeding the world and barely surviving economically while they do it. Mm. Well, for those potential parties who philanthropic type people who may be listening, people working in policy, what are some existing resources that have credibility and do address the numbers and help people direct their energies to this, like what could be, it sounds like, you know, the greatest hope that we have for surviving a climate emergency, an absolutely essential yeah. part anyway of a, of a package of not leaving um, hell on earth to our offspring. So <laughs> yeah, I think, <laughs> to put it frankly, I think that's right. I mean, I think it's, I, I want to be clear that nothing in this car, this field of carbon farming should be thought of as a silver bullet. And you will sometimes hear people talking about it like that. The only thing we need to do to solve climate change is X technique or Y technique or Z technique. The numbers don't support that. The research does not support that at this point in time. And the, the scale of our climate crisis is much larger than any one of these techniques can address. But as a basket of techniques that can be applied worldwide in combination with deep decarbonization of how our economy functions and transition to renewable energy sources, I think there's a real glimmer of hope from those two things being partnered together. And so in terms of resources on this carbon farming topic, there are two very significant resources that have been published in North America in the last few years that I can point people towards. And I, we can speak to some global resources as well. So one of them is, was published about a year and a half ago called The Carbon Farming Solution by Eric Tonsmeyer. So it's a really significant book that is a, not quite a textbook, I would say, but it is a substantial resource on the best known techniques and science behind them on the, the especially 
concentrating on the most carbon sequestering practices, but also looking at all the different below ground and above ground storage practices around the world and particularly focusing on the global south and the global tropics, because that's where there's the most smallholder farmers. That's where in many cases there's the most sequestration potential in the tropical climates. And it's also where there's the greatest need to conserve tropical forests so that the situation globally doesn't spiral even further out of control through deforestation of those lungs of the planet as they, as they really are. So really recommend Eric Tonsmeyer's The Carbon Farming Solution. And then the second, the second book that was just published this year by Paul Hawken and a team of researchers from around the world is called Drawdown. And that's a quantification of the, all the already in place climate change solutions, both on the emissions reduction end and on the carbon sequestration end with their effects on emissions and sequestration calculated and their economic costs and benefits calculated. So it's a very whole systems look at the numbers of what these different things involve. And there's a lot of carbon farming practices in that solution set. And also some other really interesting things involving, you know, renewable energy technologies and also involving the social and political rights and safety of, of women and smallholder farmers around the world. And, and they, they paint a really compelling picture of why that translates into climate benefits. So really recommend the Drawdown book. And then for those who really are interested in policy, the IPCC's report on climate change from the Paris Climate Accord Agreement is very comprehensive and very good also. And there's a lot of things related to land use and agriculture in there as well. Mm. But in terms of a lot of different countries, you know, one of the things that you can do on the policy side that would make a big difference is, I mean, starting at a really basic level, just funding agricultural conservation programs. Because a lot of the most basic carbon farming techniques that we're talking about are just conservation agriculture techniques that people are already doing and that the public sector already has been supporting. So in addition to those conservation practices, also funding and supporting agroforestry as a set of techniques. And that's that tree-based agriculture we've been talking about that is getting a lot of traction in, in a lot of the global south and also in China and parts of the European Union. Um, China's doing amazing work on carbon farming right now um, on a bigger scale than a lot of other places in the world. So those are some starting points for some of those policy questions. And it might be interesting to talk about what people can do as consumers and, you know, with their purchasing power and thinking about, you know, thinking about our own, our own footprint and impact in our own lives. Would that well, be a good direction? To I go was thinking here? the exact same thing, but we are out of time for our broadcast <laughs> section of this interview but would you be happy to stay on the phone for our podcast listeners and we could discuss that very topic yeah sounds very good well and thanks so much adam for hosting this conversation i hope that was of some value to your your radio listeners and if y'all can come on to the podcast we can keep going a little bit on the more the, the individual and local level yeah well thank you so much for your time on the live to Air part connor stedman my great pleasure thanks adam great well if you're still listening that means that you are one of our podcast listeners. So thank you for um, tracking us down. If you're a first-time listener, you may have had to skip through part of the <laughs> interview to get here. But um, why don't we spend 10 more minutes, if you're willing to, to go there, Connor, and talk about what, it, what the implications of your research uh, looking into all this stuff from – the perspective of farmers and from the perspective of the big figures of what we need to do to draw down carbon into the soil and into trees, 
that obviously then spins out into implications for most of what the most of the us are doing which is consuming the products of, of that are coming off farms. so what are, right if we were to be responsible right. consumers what would be things to do and let's not leave the the meat question untouched yeah sounds very good okay so let's let's talk about meat consumption for a minute and the the question of grazing because um so a couple things a couple things about this there are large parts of the earth where, and especially in semi-arid climates and, and, and lots of mountain, mountain climates as well, high elevation regions, where by far the most appropriate large acreage agricultural strategy is grazing animals. And those are, you know, these are places where those are pastoralist lifestyles, nomadic lifestyles that people have been practicing for thousands and thousands of years. So it is a very place-based question Hmm. which farming practices are appropriate where Um, it's not something you can make a blanket global statement about yeah Um, i'd definitely say a lot of victoria where we're broadcasting from well the southern hemisphere tends to have a more eclectic climate if if you can put it that (laughs) way like it's a lot less dependable than the northern hemisphere and el nino and all these kind of things Um, but just even on a day-to-day level and that does make agriculture as in, in the sense of um, raising crops, a little bit more challenging sometimes. Whereas yes. it seems that pasture systems can handle variation. You know, you can have a bit of a drought, but one day a rain and the grass will bounce back and the animals can get by on dry feed for a while. Yeah. And so it seems yeah. a little bit more resilient to a less reliable climate. Yeah, that's right. And so in arid and semi-arid climates, the stocking rates that those lands can support of animals is very low. Mm. And the amount of carbon that can be stored through grazing is also very low because of that. In higher rainfall climates, there's a higher potential for carbon storage through grazing. And and again, we had that number of 1% increase in soil organic matter storing 10 tons of carbon per acre that's doable with grazing animals. You can, you can over years of good rotational grazing, you can raise soil organic matter by multiple percent, um, you know, and, and get up into that 30 to 50 tons per acre stored range through grazing. Now there's a few caveats that have to be mentioned. Yeah. And so you did say one that of them this is was that, one area where the numbers were not as well grounded as um, some of the other aspects of carbon farming that you mentioned earlier too. Yeah. That, that's right. So the so globally, the sequestration rates that have come out of empirical research that's been done from grazing have been shown to be fairly low and, you know, a little bit higher than for the improved annual practices, but not at the level of the tree-based practices. There have been outlier results of individual farms or individual research plots showing much higher carbon storage from grazing practices. And those are very interesting and promising. But we're not at a point where we can say those outlier results can apply broadly across millions of acres. Hmm. That really has not been demonstrated yet. So there are very grand claims that have sometimes been made about the amount of carbon that can be stored through grazing. And while that may be true sometimes when the conditions are really right for it, I think there's a lot more research that's needed on whether those really, really improved grazing practices, those excellent holistic planned grazing practices can really consistently store that much carbon. Hmm. And, and I just don't think we have the research basis to say that yet. The and- other thing that's important to understand about grazing systems is that 
if you're grazing ruminants, meaning animals with multiple stomachs, so you know these are these these are these ungulates, right? So goats and sheep, and particularly cattle, those animals emit methane as part of their digestion process, and particularly methane. There's significant methane emissions from cattle to a, to a greater degree than from small ruminants. The math that's been done so far is that you generally lose about 25% of your carbon storage in the equivalent amount of methane emission when you're grazing cows. Now, let me, let me just paint a picture here too, because when you're, when you're holding livestock in a confinement operation, mm. in other words, this is feedlot farming, which you know has all kinds of really heartbreaking impacts on those animals and then on the workers and laborers who work there. Mm. There's a lot of big animal rights and human rights questions about that kind of farming. Um, and it also, you know, there's big economic pressure that makes people do that. So I don't fault the people who've had to make that choice. But, but that kind of confinement feedlot operation has a very substantial amount of methane emissions from the manure of the animals because the manure is so concentrated and often it's pooled in manure lagoons mm-hmm. and it decomposes almost entirely anaerobically. And so there's a large amount of methane emitted from that. In a grazing system, there's not significant methane from manure because the manure is broadcast across a landscape, and so it largely breaks down aerobically rather than anaerobically. Oh, it made me think that's what we're doing, is broadcasting <laughs> manure from this radio station. In a, in a way where we're hopefully <laughs> right, like right, fertilizing totally. some mines. <laughs> totally. Now, on the other hand, in a grazing system, there's more methane emitted through belching, because the, because the cows are using their multiple stomachs to digest and redigest grass, which is what they're adapted to do. That is in the essence and nature of a cow. But in a confinement system where they're being fed grain, they digest it much more quickly. And so there's less belching methane. And I say that not to, not to say that feedlots are good or to say that grazing is bad, but just to say that we have to look empirically at the co- complexity of some of these questions. And Yeah, that's I really great. Though. It, it's so easy just to think everything about um, one thing is good and everything about another thing is bad. So it's good to hear um, some nuance there. Although I would say that yeah. we don't have a lot of grain-fed operations for cattle in Australia. That um, Sometimes a little bit of finishing, I think, happens there, but um, right. and, it's almost and all may pasture. It may it continue to be so for you all because those places are, those places are the site of some real horrors here in the U.S., and elsewhere in the world, and and that's some of the that's some of the stuff that the Amazon is being deforested for, also in Brazil. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think, from a consumer choice point of view, two things are true. It is true that the feedlot cattle industry, in particular, and also the feedlot poultry and pork industries as well, are very harmful environmentally from a climate point of view and also from a water quality and and other forms of pollution point of view, as well as the animal rights and ethics side of it. So I think it is true that from a personal footprint point of view, it would be really good for people in the wealthy industrialized nations of the world to eat less meat. And you know, people, you know, there are people in the beef industry who'd be very unhappy to hear me saying that. And I understand why they would feel that way. Um, But there's only at least in the US, and this may not be true in Australia, and God bless you if it is, but in a lot of in the US and Europe, uh, only a small minority of the beef and pork and poultry that is available 
on the market to consumers comes from pastured sources that are putting more carbon in the ground than they're emitting. So, so reducing meat consumption in the industrialized, the wealthy industrialized world would be a big win for the climate. And then of the meat that we do continue to eat, eating much more of it from pastured grass fed sources that are doing good grazing. I think that's the second part of that. So that we can really support those good, those good, producers who are doing really good management with animals and also that we can really, really reduce our use of that, of that high greenhouse gas emission producing feedlot meat. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's not something you find on the labels that this uh, beef has been raised with rotational management, carbon storing practices. <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, and there's although... people who are working on that and there, that may be, you know, that may be a con- consumer facing part of this that rolls out in the coming years, um, which would be, which would be interesting. But I would say, you know, there are a lot of benefits to having animals in the landscape, too. There's a lot of land management benefits. There's a lot of fertility cycling benefits. And a lot of, and this is an interesting intersection with your question about the unsustainability of a lot of grain production. Because historically, a lot of the small farming cultures around the world that did grow wheat and barley and rye and corn and a lot of these annual grain crops, they did it in conjunction with animals. So they did it in conjunction with producing guano and manure purposefully from their animal herds that then they used to fertilize those grains. And I think that there is this symbiosis that we need to have between grains and livestock that plays out on a lot of different levels. And it's a bigger topic than we have time for right now, but I'm not at all proposing getting rid of animals from our diet or from our, from our landscapes. Mm. Um, but just to say like, let's really learn about what the impacts are of what we're doing. Yeah. Um, and, and indeed, you know, let's recognize that, you know, people's cultural situations are different and there's cultures, there's herding cultures that have been, have been living almost entirely off animal products for thousands of years. And it would really be strange for the urbanized Western world to say you have to stop doing that. Yeah. So if I could summarize, the, the meat question is somewhat situation specific. Anything that's being fed grain, which would be all pork and all chicken, is questionable. Although even there, there are cases where on small scales, um, having those more omnivorous animals incorporated into perennial polyculture type systems um, would be right. perfectly sustainable and possibly even enhancing those systems. Right. But nearly totally. everything... Let me just jump, me uh, just but, jump in there and yeah. say that what you really want to be feeding pork and poultry, what you really want to be feeding pigs and chickens is waste streams. Yep. You, you want those omnivorous animals, like they can eat things that would otherwise go to landfills and produce methane emissions. So if you can redirect waste streams to become feedstock for those animals, that actually is a that actually is a climate benefit. Yeah, yeah. Well, we kind of think of composting as this um, you know high thing to do that will capture carbon and create good soil and things, but it's actually a waste of putting your food scraps straight into the compost when they could be feeding an animal. <laughs> yeah, totally. And again, it's very situational, like you say, but yeah. that's a good point. And then on the. So- on the beef front, it's like, well, maybe because they do they do burp methane, but if they're on the pasture, that can be in certain um, rotational or managed grazing situations uh, overcome, and they can be a net carbon sink. And indeed, we really hope they can right. be because we're absolutely desperate for those large parts of the the planet which we can only manage because they're a bit more dry and um, unpredictable yeah. weather and with lot, animals. And a lot of those. 
a lot of those semi-arid climates are much more appropriate for sheep and goats than and sheep, goats, oh, yeah. and camels than they are for for beef. Yep. So that's another consideration too. The small ruminants, you know, at least in the U.S., I don't know how it is in Australia, but in the U.S., lamb and goat are considered somewhat niche products, but goat is the most widely eaten meat in the world. Huh. And goat and sheep are animals that fit really well into a lot of landscapes and, and don't have the magnitude of methane emissions that cattle do and are much lighter on the land in a lot of different ways. So I think those are animals that if we could have them more on our farms and more in our diets, that would be a big benefit. Yeah. But nevertheless, it seems like uh, we're talking about less meat in diets as a good personal choice, especially when you don't know the source of it. Yeah. And in terms of other consumer things, you know, one of the one of the biggest things is that there are some tropical food products that are grown in shade. And that means that they're either grown under shade cloth, you know, in big industrial plantations, or they're grown in the shade of other tropical trees. Yeah, and they're grown as the understory of the agroforestry systems. Yep. Like if you, so, it seems like it's just the obvious thing. If you've got shade cloth there, that's, that could be a photosynthetic layer rather than plastic. So, yeah, totally. So if you are a, someone who drinks coffee or eats chocolate, if you can buy that from shade grown sources, those are, those are tropical multi-strata systems that you're supporting and helping keep alive, usually from small producers. And that's really, really important for the future of the planet to keep those tropical forests intact. And one of the ways that's going to happen is through farming high value products in them, you know, for better or for worse, and hopefully not everywhere, but in some places, and that'll incentivize restoring those forests back as cacao and coffee orchards, which, which would be a big benefit to, to a lot of people in a lot of forms of life. So so the shade grown, the shade grown coffee and chocolate is one of the, one of the things to look at. And I think the other thing is, the other thing is really about thinking about supply chains and thinking about where food comes from, because a lot of agricultural emissions, you know, there's a whole other side of agricultural emissions we didn't talk about, which is the emissions from the production process, mm. you know, and from the, from the equipment and combines and vehicles and packaging and transport and cold storage. And oh my gosh. I, I don't um, and, know how accurate the f- figures are, but the one that's been floating around for um, years, there's been a couple of studies that have come to similar conclusions, is that for every calorie of food we eat, there's roughly 10 calories of fossil fuel goes into its growing <laughs> production, transportation, yeah. processing, refrigeration, and cooking to get to your plate. Yeah, I would not be surprised if that were true. And you know, globally right now, agriculture produces 25% of greenhouse gas emissions. So doing some thinking about the supply chain that's involved in producing the food that we eat and really, you know, buying, buying food that we have a closer relationship to that is from our local bioregion, that is from the, the farmers and gardeners and folks down the road um, is going to really reduce our footprint on that level. And also people growing their own food in their own backyards. You know, that's the, that's the, that's the most um, emissions reducing way to produce food is to grow it yourself right where you live. Um, you know, just with hand tools and the way that people have been doing it for so long. Yeah. Well, last night we actually had a guest on the show, not when this goes to air, but um, from when we we're recording it, Chris Williams, which I haven't heard yet because I um, ducked out, but he is a, uh, someone that's enthusiastic about the home growing of all sorts of novel and mostly perennial crops in the backyard. So it's a real tie into. Um, what you're saying of how agriculture needs to transform. Um, actually, growing veggies in the backyard, which are annuals, is a 
probably the best spot for doing it. But there's also all these other peren- ways of perennializing your food production in the backyard, and they're really exciting and um, interesting, and not yeah. yeah, some really cool fruit and things you can get that you would never get in the supermarket. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, we would definitely yeah, those, went- those home gardens are those home gardens are really really interesting things, and you know you might think of it as a small you know, a small nothing, you know, just having a little plot in your backyard under some fruit trees, but that's a really ancient form of agriculture. And I think, I think people can, we can learn a lot and, and develop a lot of capacity with our hands and a lot of ability to provide for ourselves through doing that. And it's, and it's, and it is one of these really higher carbon storage strategies when we combine trees with other forms of production in the small area. Yeah. Well, I've definitely kept you much longer than the promised 10 minutes overtime, Connor, but it was a really, uh, really excellent to delve into consumer choices at the end. And yeah, and things that I still are very vague about the best strategies with regards to meats, and that did help fill out my understanding a little bit. So thank you so much for that. You yeah, also- absolutely. Well, you know, real pleasure to come on and, and, you know, hopefully some of this lands in a useful way for some of your many listeners. And it's great to imagine you all doing good things on the other side of the world from where I am here in North America. And uh, maybe we can, we can see you on, on one side of the globe or another at another point in time. That would be, that would be a real pleasure. That was indeed our conversation with Connor Stedman about carbon farming. You're on Greening the Apocalypse on 3RRR. That was fascinating for me. Uh, there's just so much in that little conversation about mm. generational change of farming and the potential for, for this sort of carbon farming to add so much to our, um, our potential survival. But it's all really massive stuff that needs a lot of will from from a few people but it um yeah that was just fascinating so yeah great. very large-scale changes but inspirational ones yeah um yeah we just got to work out how we can make it happen and yeah solve the world's problems really yeah like just figure that out every week <laughs> <laughs> um super fluidy crew there they look like they're there hi oh we're there you are we're, we're totally here, here. Would you guys rather live in a... Um, last week we were talking about Elon Musk and his kind of mm. futuristic green vision of the future where you, I don't know, you might, you know, you're going to have really sexy kind of sports cars mm. and it's kind of Jetsons, but it's a bit more I'm eco. Already, I'm already not there. Already not there. <laughs> <laughs> would, you, would you rather that or the more kind of agrarian, you know, you have to get up and milk a goat, um, but there might be a bit of mead. I love goats. I, yeah. I was just saying the other day, I would really, I'd be up for a robot boyfriend <laughs> a, a la David from, um, from Prometheus, but only if the skin felt like, like high-end silicon, like if they, try and, <laughs> if they try and make it feel like fake human meat, I'm nodding to it. Yeah, that's kind of, that is, you're right actually, it should be, it shouldn't feel human. Well, that got crazy real quick. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, these guys. guys. These guys want to live on the other side of the Uncanny Valley, apparently. I'm all, I'm all about the agrarian lifestyle with, within being quite aware that my physical fitness is not up to the task of living in that world. I was just thinking of actually a robot goat. <laughs> well, I was thinking Clem could get her sexy robot boyfriend to do the milking and there it's best go. of both huh? worlds. As it were. <laughs> Ouch. Yeah. Ew. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd move to like you know the Isle of Man with my robot husband. 
sure. The robot husband's non-negotiable. No. no matter what the world <laughs> looks like. I actually got sad that it didn't exist yet. <laughs> Are you guys, how many shows do you guys have left? This, this is the last it. one oh, for the year. We'll have oh, a grand wow. one. How about you guys? We're, We're doing next week. You're doing next week. Okay. Yep. Um, well, have a fine uh, final show and summer break. Uh, we have been greeting the apocalypse. I've been Adam Grubb. Next week, we're going to have a show where we discuss the importance of meeting skills. And then we're going to have our on-air meeting because we haven't had one for a while. So that's going to be potentially a little hectic and stressful and interesting radio. <laughs> and then we go out of the pub. Yep. So we will see you then. Until then, have all the fun. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.